Good morning, church family. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open those to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1 for our scripture reading today. Uh, for the reading of the scripture today, we will read verses 9 through 20. And today for our scripture reading, we're, our scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And I'm using the New American Standard Bible, 1995 edition, and I'll begin in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of our all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is one of my favorite passages. I love this, man. It's great. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether on thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so he himself will come to have first place in everything. Verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Thus says the Lord. Amen. I just want to introduce to you the guest speaker today. Dustin Drake is speaking today. He currently serves here as an elder at Calvary Bible Church. To give you some background on him, Dustin Drake graduated from Tennessee Temple University with a bachelor's degree in Bible. He then graduated with a master's degree in theology from Legacy Christian University. He is father to five children, grandfather to seven. And I will just say he's been a great leader here. He's a mentor to so many including myself, Dustin, and I mean this as a man of tremendous wisdom, sound doctrine, and he really has a shepherd and pastor's heart. And uh, if you do not know, I'm, I'm buttering him up because he is my father-in-law, and hopefully he'll say good stories about me um, today. It's always nerve-wracking when your father-in-law actually speaks in your church. It's really kind of terrifying. Uh, but Dustin is a tremendous asset to our church, and we are all privileged to have to hear what he has to say to us this morning. If you would welcome Dustin Drake to the stand with me. Thank you. Uh, to be honest with you, I really couldn't say much bad about my son-in-laws. I actually have two of them, and uh, they're both a tremendous blessing from God. Okay. Well, this morning in prayer time, the elders pray every Sunday morning uh, at 845, and I was just praying about this message this morning, and I was thinking, wow, did I really pick this subject, dispensational theology? You know, I really should have preached on small groups or something a little bit easier, but I bit this one off, and you know, when you talk about dispensational theology, people look at you like, what? 
if I tell someone, you know, I'm a dispensational theologist, you know, or I believe in premillennial dispensationalism, they're like, is that from a different country? Are you, what are you saying? You know, a lot of times we use these terms in Christianity and people really don't know what we mean when we say these things. Or I'm a covenant theologian. You're a covenant theologian. What does that mean? So this is a term that we use a lot. Dispensationalism, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, covenant theology, reform theology. And a lot of times we know what we mean, but we assume other people know what we're talking about. And a lot of times they really don't. So many people do not understand these terms. And so I want to try to clarify them a little bit this morning to give a little clarity to the subject. And many people are taking the position today concerning end time events and so forth, that it's just all too complicated and you really can't understand it. Or many people are taking the position today of the amillennialist, that there is going to be no millennial kingdom of Christ. So I really wanted to talk about this this morning. And also, our statement of faith at Calvary Bible Church says that we do believe in the premillennial return of Christ to earth to establish his kingdom. So this is what we teach. And so it's important for us to know what we teach. Now, if you're not a dispensational premillennialist, you're an amillennialist or even a postmillennialist, you're welcome to come to Calvary Bible Church. But that's not what we teach at Calvary Bible Church. We teach in dispensational premillennialism. So I wanted to find those terms this morning. Uh, what does it mean to be a dispensational? What does it mean to be premillennial? And what is the difference between premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism? That's hard to even say. Hard to even say. Amillennialism. What is that? Well, when you put "ah" in front of a word, it negates it. So millennium means a thousand. So they don't believe in a thousand. They don't believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. This belief is the idea that there will be no millennial reign of Christ on earth. After Christ comes back, there will be the immediate and final judgment of the righteous and the wicked. So they don't believe in a millennium. Uh, it's interesting when you put ah in front of a word, if, like the word muse means to think. Ah muse means not to think. So if you're being amused, you're not thinking. Just, just, just to throw that out there, your mind's gone in neutral. The postmillennial view... This view rests on the belief that the preaching of the gospel will be so successful that the world will be converted. The reign of Christ then lies mainly in our hearts. And when it's complete and universal, when the gospel is fully taken effect, then Christ will return. But there won't be a little reign of Christ on the earth. He's reigning in our hearts now. Now this view used to be really popular, especially in the early 1900s. What killed that view were the First and Second World Wars, <laughs> that things were going to get better and better, and Christ would eventually rule in all the hearts of people on the earth. And then there's the premillennial view. What does the premillennial view believe? Well, it's committed to the concept of an earthly reign of Christ on this earth for a thousand years. We believe that he will reign on this earth in his resurrected, glorified form for a thousand years. So that's the difference in those three views. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, because dispensational theology usually holds, almost always, the premillennial view of the kingdom. Most people today that hold the covenant theology view, 
which we'll talk about that, they are usually, almost always, amillennialist or postmillennialist. Now, there are a few that try to hold the covenant theology and then put the premillennial thing like a cherry on top, but it really doesn't work out really good with their theology. So what I want to talk to you about, and you're going to say, okay, well, some of you are saying, well, what's the difference between covenant theology and dispensational theology? Well, that's a good question. A really good question. I'm glad you asked that question because I'm going to try to answer that question this morning. Dispensational theology. All right. First, let's define a dispensation. And just to define a dispensation, I'm going to go to two great theologians. Harry Ironside said this, A dispensation is an ordered condition of things. There are various dispensations or economies running through the Bible. A dispensation is that particular order prevailing in one special age which does not necessarily exist in another. Ryrie said this, a dispensation may be defined as a stewardship, an administration, an oversight, or a management of another's property. A dispensation is basically an arrangement involved rather in a way it's arranged than in a period of time. Does that clear it up? No, it's probably clear as mud. Basically... A dispensation, when we talk about dispensation, is a way in which God deals with mankind for a particular time. And that changes throughout the scriptures. As we look at dispensationalism, the way God dealt with mankind changed over the ages. The way God dealt with Adam and Eve in the garden was drastically different than the way God dealt with them after the fall, and so forth and so on. So, Dispensationalists tend to think of their system as first and foremost being a method of interpreting the scriptures. That's one of the key elements of dispensational theology. It's a way of interpreting the scriptures. They're convicted at their core in the literal grammatical method of interpreting the scriptures. That's one of the first points of dispensational theology. Is when it comes to the scriptures, we believe in the literal method of interpreting the scriptures. And that's very important. This does not mean that there are not figures of speech, such as metaphors, similes, that come when you interpret scriptures. We all know that the scripture is full of metaphors and similes. I was looking at one this morning uh, in Psalm 114.6, where it says, Why do the mountains skip like rams? Well, we know that the mountains do not skip like rams. We know that that's not to be taken literal. That's a figure of speech. But at the heart of the Bible, when we interpret the scriptures, if the first sense makes sense, then you seek no other sense. You don't try to read into the scriptures and find some hidden meaning behind the scriptures. Now, in the times past, that has been one of the ways that people have looked at scriptures. They have read a passage of scripture, and it said this, but they had some other meaning totally derived from that, some spiritual or allegorical meaning out of the Scriptures. We don't approach the Scriptures like that. We let the Scriptures be the authority. Because what happens if you start allegorizing a passage of Scripture or a story in the Old Testament, then your mind becomes the interpreter of the Scriptures, not the words themselves. And that's very dangerous. I can make the Bible say almost anything I want it to say when I start doing that. So that's a very dangerous thing. Dispensationalism also finds that God's word, the evidence of a series of dispensations or economies under which God has managed the world. They are successive stages in God's revelation of his purposes to us. Now, 
through the different dispensations, one thing is certain and one thing runs through all of them. The means of salvation has never changed. We find in every dispensation in the Bible that salvation has always been by grace through faith. From the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, it's always been by grace through faith. So even though we believe there are different ways in which God dealt with mankind, it's always been by grace through faith. And then a third thing that makes dispensational theology distinctive is we believe there's a clear distinction between Israel and the church. The Bible does not confuse the two. They are distinct and separate. And this all stems from the Bible and the Abrahamic covenant. I believe the greatest covenant, and someone would probably argue with me on this, the greatest covenant in the Bible is actually the Abrahamic covenant. Now some people are going to say, no, 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 no. The new covenant has got to be the greatest covenant in all the scriptures. But the new covenant actually flows out of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, 13, and 15. And in chapter 17 is said to be an eternal covenant. It's a covenant that God made with Abraham that God sealed it himself. It wasn't dependent upon Abraham or the Jewish people for its fulfillment. They didn't have to meet a set of circumstances in order for God to honor that covenant. God is going to honor the promises he made to Abraham regardless of what Abraham did or what the Jewish people did. Because God sealed that covenant himself. When God put Abraham to sleep and passed through the animals that they had divided, that Abraham had divided, it meant God was fulfilling that covenant. And only God could break it. And God said in Genesis chapter 17, verse 13, it was an eternal covenant. So out of the Abrahamic covenant flow three other covenants. The Palestinian covenant, which we find in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 30, actually through the whole chapter, is that God promised the people of Israel and Abraham a specific land, a portion of land, which they actually never all took. And then there's the Davidic covenant, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 through 17. That's where God promised a king would reign on the throne of Israel forever. And then there's the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. I don't bet you guys didn't know that the New Covenant is talked about in the Old Testament, but it is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And that's where God says, I'm going to give you a new heart. He says, I'm going to take the, the way, the, the, the law, and I'm going to put my law on your hearts. Instead of it being an outward compulsion, it's going to be an inward compassion. I'm going to change you from the inside out. So when we look at dispensationalism, we see it's based on this Abrahamic covenant and the covenants that flow out of it. And it's important to look at the fact that when God set up these dispensations or the way in which he dealt with man, there's three things you want to see about that in a dispensation. First of all is a test. God establishes some kind of test of obedience. Number two, there's always a failure. And number three, there's a judgment. So let's look at the dispensations I just want to go through them this morning. And this, this is the way I look at the dispensations. It's the way I was taught. And so there's other people that would may disagree with this. But this is seven dispensations that I think are in the Scriptures, which is the number of perfection. 
The first dispensation of the way in which God dealt with mankind was in the Garden of Eden. And that was a dispensation of innocency or freedom. That's Genesis 1, verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 6. God created Adam. He's the key person in this this story. And God created Adam with positive holiness for face-to-face meeting with God. God came down in the cool of the day, and he met with Adam, and he met with Eve, and he walked and talked with them face-to-face. And that's the way God originally intended things to be. It was a stewardship that God gave to Adam and Eve to rule over the earth. His responsibility for keeping the garden and one thing that he was not supposed to do, which was eat the forbidden fruit. For, of course, he did. Adam and Eve fell, and God pronounced judgment on them and threw them out of the garden. That ended the dispensation of innocency or freedom because mankind was now a fallen sinner. But God then instituted a dispensation of conscience or self-determination. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1 through eight fourteen. And the title from this comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 15. You can look that verse up if you want to think, look at it. But man was responsible for the promptings of his conscience. Man was to bring a blood offering when he sinned against God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21 and 4, verse 4. So basically God instituted when he slew the animal in the Garden of Eden and clothed Adam and Eve's nakedness. He set up before them that when you sin, you need to offer a sacrifice for your sinfulness. It's up to you to know what is right and wrong. It's up, to let, it's up to you to let your conscience be your guide. Like Jiminy Cricket used to say in Disney, let your conscience be your guide. Now that sounds good because a lot of people will say you just need to follow the, your conscience. But the problem with your conscience is it, it, it's, it works on the basis of the information you've been taught. So if you've been taught the wrong things or not been taught anything about morality, then your conscience is going to make bad decisions because you have a sinful nature. You can also violate your conscience to the point your conscience doesn't work anymore. It's called searing your conscience. And under this dispensation, man basically failed. In fact, there's only three people cited as examples of faith. Abel, Enoch, and Noah during this period of time. And under the let your conscience be your guide principle, earth became so corrupt and so wicked that by Genesis chapter 6, God says the imaginations and thoughts of every person was only on evil continually. Their conscience had become totally corrupt and wicked. Now, there's a lot of things that went into that that I don't have to talk about this time to talk about today. That's a whole other message as why that happened. It wasn't just man himself, but it was also demonic influence interceding in that time. But basically, mankind had turned away from God. And the only one that found grace in the eyes of God was a man named Noah and his family. God pronounced judgment on the earth and destroyed every living thing on the earth, except for Adam and his, or Noah and his family and the animals which were in the ark. So what did God do after that? Well, God instituted the dispensation of human or civil government. Genesis chapter 8, verse 15 to chapter 11, verse 9. The chief person of this was Noah, and there was new revelation given. Animals were to fear man. Animals were given to man to be eaten, which is interesting because it doesn't seem that animals were eaten before that time. A promise of no more universal judgment by water and the institution of capital punishment. Think about that. Before that, where was the law? God instituted 
human government, and you know what the purpose of human government is. If you don't know, look at Romans chapter 13. He tells us, the purpose of government is to protect the righteous and those that do good and to punish those that are evildoers. And basically, it's to keep evil down on the earth. It's to keep the whole earth from becoming corrupt and evil again. So what we really need is we need government. Government can solve all our problems. How many of you guys believe that this morning? Does anyone believe that here this morning, that government has all the answers to solving our problems? Now, I don't see any hands, and if you do, that's okay, but you're wrong. Government can't solve all our problems because we are wicked, sinful people at heart. And government has a problem always to go awry. And our founding fathers knew that. They built that into the Constitution. That's why they gave us guns. Because they knew that the propensity for human government was, were to become corrupt and evil. They can't solve all our problems. Mankind likes to think they can. And there's people that believe that government can solve all the ills. There's people that believe if we just have a one-world economic system, that we can, we can have equity all over the earth and equality all over the earth, and everything will be peace and prosperous. We can have utopia. And so it wasn't long after this that a group of people on the planet Earth got together and decided just that. If we all get together and all become one and work together, we can have the perfect... In fact, we can build a tower all the way up to heaven and we can just kick God out. And we can run things on our own. That was the Tower of Babel. And God came down and confused their languages and drove them out across the face of the earth to create different nations. Did you know that the different nations around the earth is a blessing from God? Have you ever thought about that? The reason it is is because once there's a one world government of people all doing the same thing, if it becomes corrupt, it becomes totally corrupt. If the leadership becomes evil, it's controlled totally by evil leadership. What if we had had a one world government when Hitler came to power? What would have happened to our, our, our world? It would have been a place, a horrible, horrible place. But God had different nations. And God had a nation across the ocean called America. And God raised them up and used them to put down that evil in Germany that had risen around the world, that evil that was trying to have a totalitarian government. So God, by creating the different nations, has kept the world a safer place. Incidentally, people a lot of times ask me, why are there so many Christian denominations? Why, there, why is this? I just don't understand why we can't all just get together and be one. It's the same principle. Christian denominations turn, tend to turn away from God over time and become apostate. If you don't believe me, go and look at some of the mainline denominations today. They don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. They violate the Word of God. They do all kinds. They don't, I don't even know if they even read the Word of God anymore. But by having different denominations, God can protect and still have denominations that believe and teach the Word of God. Now, most of the denominations that have difference that are true Christian denominations, we differ on secondary issues. We don't differ on the fundamentals of the truth of God's Word. And so, even then, though, God, by having different denominations, protects. There's, a, there's protection in that. So they don't all become corrupt at once. So this failed, God pronounced judgment, he drove them out around the face of the earth. So then God tried a different thing after, after human government failed. He tried the dispensation of promise or patriarchal rule. 
And that goes, that comes from Hebrews chapter 6 verse 14, if you're wondering where that title comes from. It's Genesis 11.10 through Exodus 18.27. The chief character in this was Abraham. Abraham who received the promise. And basically in the Abrahamic economy under the patriarchal rule, God decided I'm going to call out a family from, a, from the face of the earth and I'm going to make them my special people. I'm going to build a nation out of Abraham. And they're going to be people that I'm going to protect and bless. And the Abrahamic covenant had three blessings. God said, I will bless you and make you a great nation. I will give you a great name. I will bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was a promise of the Messiah. Of course, God called him to a land... And Abraham didn't stay in the land often. He kept going down to Egypt, which represents the world. And eventually he ended up in Egyptian slavery, and the people of Israel ended up in slavery. So this period ended with, with the people of God, the nation of Israel, being held in Egyptian slavery. So the next one is the dispensation of the Mosaic Law. Chief character in this is Moses. The duration is from the Sinai to the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 tells us that's when it's ended. The law was given to the nation of Israel. The law consisted of 613, although some would debate and say there's 619 commandments covering every phase of life. The people were responsible to do all the law. Now, why did God call his people out and then give them the law? What was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the Mosaic law? Were people saved by keeping the Mosaic law? No. They were saved by grace through faith just like today. So he gave them the the law for three reasons, I believe. First of all, to bring us to Christ and to bring them to Christ. That's what Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says. The law was our schoolmaster to show us how sinful we were to bring us to Christ. So what did the people of Israel do when they sinned? They offered a sacrifice for their sin. They were sacrificing animals all the time for their sin. Which pointed them to the greater sacrifice. It was pointing them to the Messiah, to the cross. Why did God give them the law? To protect the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5 says that God planted a vineyard, a very fruitful vineyard. And he says he put a wine press in the middle of it and he built a high wall around it. That wine press in the middle was a temple. That high wall around the nation of Israel were the laws that God gave them. The laws were to keep them separate from the heathen nations around them, to keep them from becoming corrupt. Now, the law can't really do that, because the law comes from the external. And to really, to keep the law, you have to have a heart change. You have to be saved by grace through faith. You have to be born again. And then God gave them the law to show light to the Gentile nations. The law was given to the people of Israel so that they would be different. They would be distinct. They would worship the true and living God. They would be holy. And it was a place made in the temple called the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles could come and be near unto God. And so they were supposed to be a light to the nations around them. Well, they failed. They failed in every way. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 tell us that the the nation of Israel failed, and God judged them ultimately. By the, in 70 A.D., we find this in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, and dispersed them around the world. And that brought in, though, the dispensation now of grace. 
The nation of Israel put to death their Messiah, but in doing so, they were actually fulfilling the actual will of God and bringing in the dispensation of grace. The dispensation of grace, well, the chief figure we know who in that is Jesus Christ himself. He brought the grace of God to mankind through his incarnation. John chapter 1 verse 17 says it was grace upon grace. This grace was largely expounded by the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2 he calls it a dispensation of grace was given to him. He says this, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. The dispensation of grace brings Jew and Gentile both into equal standing before God, both total access before God in the church. This is a great time to be alive and experience the dispensation of God's grace. We have the full Old Testament. We have the full New Testament. We have the Holy Spirit of God living within us. And we can come boldly to the throne of grace because we now are the temple of God. He lives in our hearts. He doesn't live in this building. He doesn't live in a temple made with hands. The Bible says we are the temple of God, and he lives in his people. It's a wonderful, awesome time to be alive. And God is working through the church to spread the gospel. But unlike the post-millennialists believe, the gospel is not going to completely convert the earth. I wish it would. I wish that view was true. I wish more and more and more people would just get saved to the whole world. Practically were followers of Christ. And then Christ would come back. And then we'd all go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us there's going to be a time called the tribulation period. A time of great distress and the wrath of God. Because people have basically turned away from the Lord. In fact, Thessalonians tells us. In chapter 2, that the Antichrist cannot come until a great falling away or apostasy takes place first. The church will apostatize. And what that means, it will turn away from God. Does that mean that people won't name the name of Christ? That people won't go to church anymore? No. It's like Titus says, they'll have a form of godliness, but they'll deny the power thereof. Jesus will be there in name, but he won't be there in their hearts. It'll be a false religion. I fear the prosperity gospel is leading us down that road itself. And so this time of the tribulation period will be a time where God pours out his wrath upon unbelieving people because they've rejected him. They've turned away from Christ, turned to false Christ and other things. And then after the tribulation period will be the final dispensation on this earth. And I believe that is the dispensation of the millennial kingdom. This takes place right after Christ returns to the earth. And I believe it's a thousand year period where Christ will rule and reign upon this earth. I believe that according to Revelation chapter 20 that Satan himself will be bound and put in a pit. And on this earth will be a time of prosperity and peace like we've never seen before. I believe that during the tribulation period, God is not only pouring out judgment upon the earth, but God also is taking up his people Israel once again. And he's dealing with them, and he's going to fulfill all the promises that he made to Abraham. 
Those promises will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom where Christ is ruling on and reigning on the throne and all the people of Israel are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ on his throne. I believe that's going to happen. I believe it's going to be a thousand year period of time. And then after that period of time, the Bible says Satan is released for a little bit. He goes out and deceives the people. And you say, well, who is deceiving? Well, there's people that's going to be born on the earth during that thousand-year period of time that are sinners. They're in their human bodies. And they have to receive Christ. They have to believe in him and be saved. Now, we'll be there, I believe, but I don't believe we'll be in our human body. Our regular bodies will be in our glorified bodies. The Bible says we will rule and reign with Christ. I believe we'll be ruling and reigning with Christ, the church-age saints, during that period of time. So this is dispensationalism. So one of the big problems with dispensationalism is what do you do with Israel? And so I want to talk a little bit about that. I want to share just a tad bit about that. If you go to Romans chapter 11, and you can flip over there, Romans chapter 11. I want to read this. This is, a, this is a, Paul talking about the people of Israel. And look at verse 26. Actually, look at verse, uh, let's start in verse 25. He says this, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you become wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Blindness in part happened to them. The nation of Israel as a whole was blinded to their Messiah. Now, some people today that are Jews, Jewish people, they have become Messianic Jews. They have become followers of Christ. In fact, all the first Christians were followers of Christ, believe it or not, were Jews. All the first followers of Christ were Jewish. But blindness to the nation has has come in part. Until when? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The fullness of the Gentiles. God is taking out from among the Gentiles. A people for his name. He's doing that since Christ died and rose again. Christ would be a light to the Gentiles. And in the body of Christ, the church, Jew and Gentile have equal standing before God. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so is it written, that all of Israel shall be saved. The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is the covenant I make with them when I take away their sins. God has set them aside, but the promises he made to Abraham, one day he will fulfill those. The new covenant, what do you do with the new covenant in Jeremiah chapter 31? Well, that's probably the biggest problem with dispensational theology, is how does it apply to the church in Israel? And there's a lot of different views on that, but this is what I believe, that it has a double fulfillment. The new covenant has a double double fulfillment. It has one for the church, which is the body of Christ, which is both Jews and Gentiles in the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, being pulled out from the Gentiles, brought together. And when that is taken to be with the Lord, then God will deal a second time with the people of Israel. He has a fulfillment for them also. In Zechariah, it says that the people of Israel will look upon Christ, whom they have pierced, And they will mourn for him as one mourns for their only son. And it's at that time that the people of Israel will turn back to God. I believe that's during the tribulation period. So dispensational theology has a big rival. And I'm just about through. That big rival is covenant theology. 
covenant theology. A lot of people today are covenant the- theologians. And most people that are Reformed theologians are covenant theologians. And most people that are covenant theologians, nearly all of them, are amillennialists or postmillennialists. Most of them are amillennialists because po- most people don't buy into postmillennialism anymore. So they don't believe there's going to be a millennial kingdom of Christ, of him ruling and reigning on the earth. They believe that when Christ returns, that we'll all go before the judgment of God, that those who are saved will go into everlasting righteousness, those who are not will go into eternal destruction. That's what they believe. Here's three things they believe. First of all, the new covenant replaces the old covenant. They believe that the, there are two basic covenants, the old covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. And they believe that because of that, God making two great covenants, that the new covenant replaces the old covenant. Baptism replaces circumcision as a sign of the covenant. That's why most Reformed theologians or covenant theologians believe in infant baptism. This is we circumcise our children in the Jewish nation to show they were part of the covenant. They baptize children. Infant baptism to show that they're part of the covenant. Secondly, they believe the church replaces Israel in God's plan. So in covenant theology, they believe that the church today has taken the place of Israel. The nation of Israel was cast aside, and now the church is going to receive all the blessings to the nation of Israel. Now, the problem with that is is that a lot of the, prom- the promises made to Israel were of a kingdom, and, and, and Christ, the Messiah, ruling in the kingdom. And so, how do they say that, that replaces it? Well, they say all the promises of the Bible, of a literal kingdom, will be fulfilled in the church spiritually. And they use the allegorical method of interpretation on prophetic passages. Let's look at a couple of those. If you've got your Bible this morning, turn over to Isaiah chapter 2. We're going to look at a couple of these out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2. I actually did a paper on this passage. This is really a neat passage. Isaiah chapter 2 verse 1 says, The word of Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. Incidentally, this is allegorical, (laughs) symbolic language right here. The mountain speaking of the Lord's government shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall say, shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word from the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nor shall they lift up the sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, I believe that's literally going to happen. I believe in the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, that that will literally happen. That all nations will be under the rule and reign of Christ. He'll be ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. The church age saints will be ruling with him. And there will be peace and prosperity upon this earth for a thousand years. Satan will be bound and he can't deceive anybody. I believe that's literal. Now, our friends that believe in covenant theology, and there's many great Christians, I want to throw that out there, that believe in covenant theology. I know many great Christians who believe in amillennialism, and they're wonderful Christians. I think they're mistaken in that, so it's not a thing where I'd break fellowship with them. I want to say that right now. But they would say that this passage would be fulfilled spiritually in the hearts and lives of people in the church. 
that there is peace ruling and reigning in our hearts. And Christ is ruling among his people. And, he, and we don't go to war because of Christ being in our hearts. Another passage, look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6. Isaiah, flip over, we're going to stay in Isaiah for a second. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. A nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. And a weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. That doesn't give you chills. In other words, it's going to be like it was in the Garden of Eden. Things will revert back the way they were during the millennial kingdom. What a day that will be. What a joyous, glorious day that will be. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 25, one more. It says, The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I believe that's going to be fulfilled literally. The covenant theologian would say, no, those are being fulfilled in our hearts now in the church. Those are, those are now being fulfilled among us. So, I take one more exception, and that's, let's go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. And verse 4. All the way over to Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark in their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy who, who is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, our friends that are, that are covenant theologians would say this is not to be taken literally. This is talking about Christ ruling and reigning in our hearts now and the great peace that we have. This is just a spiritual thing. I don't believe that. I believe this is literal. I believe Jesus is coming back. I believe he's setting up a kingdom. I believe that the false prophet and Antichrist are thrown in the lake of fire. I believe that Satan himself is bound with a chain. He said, well, you can't bound a spiritual being with a chain. You bind him with a spiritual chain. God doesn't have a problem with that. and puts him in a pit for a thousand years, and he shall not deceive the nations. I believe this is to be taken literally. That's dispensational theology. That's premillennialism. What we see, what do we see from this, this way of looking at scriptures? And this is just a way of looking at scriptures. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to start a debate or anything uh, of us on end time events, but this is what our church believes and teaches in pre, the premillennial return of Christ. Now, there's a lot of debates you can have over that, but what do we see from this scripture? What's the practical application? The first thing we see from looking at the scriptures is that man is undone apart from God. 
man on his own cannot be his own God. We can never be God. No matter what we try to do. If we're given total innocency and freedom, we will choose to sin against God. That's the nature of free will. If you try to let your conscience be your guide, it won't work. Human government will fail. If God even calls out a people for himself and blesses them and tries to lead them, they're going to they're keep going back to Egypt eventually. <laughs> the Mosaic law, it can't change our hearts. And even now in the dispensation of grace, with the grace of God so available, with the truth of God's word available to almost everyone, with the Holy Spirit working in our midst now, people eventually will reject the truth because they want to be their own God and they want to follow in sin. And even... When Christ is ruling and reigning on the throne of Jerusalem, when we have perfect government, perfect peace, perfect everything, the people that are born into the millennial kingdom in the flesh, they will be born with fallen natures, and they'll have to repent and believe in their hearts. But you know what happens? When Satan is released from the pit, he comes out and says, Hey, this Christ, this religious fanatic, and all these religious fanatics that follow him, let's go overthrow them, and then you can do whatever you want to be, do. You can be your own God. You don't have to listen to him anymore. And it says that the nations will go up against Christ and against his people, and Christ will call down fire from heaven and they'll all be destroyed. The millennial kingdom will end with the failure of man once again. The Bible tells us, and that's the theme that runs throughout the Bible, is man trying to exalt himself. I saw this in the book of Genesis when I started studying the book of Genesis, that men were always trying to exalt themselves and make of themselves a great name. We see it before the flood. We see it after the flood at the Tower of Babel. Man tries to exalt himself. He wants to be his own God. But what we find in the scriptures over and over again is God taking people who will be obedient to him and trust him and believe in him. And he makes of them a great name. He exalts their name. He told Abraham, if you will follow me and believe in me, I'll make of you a great name. Noah, he made of him a great name. It is only with a relationship with God and dependence and obedience to him that we can be blessed in this life and throughout all eternity. God's number is always out of seven. Of perfection. And man's number outside of a relationship with God is always six. We're always incomplete. We're always undone. So I would challenge you today. If you've been trying to live your life for yourself. You've been trying to control things. You've been trying to be your own God. The captain of your ship. That you would yield your heart and life to Jesus Christ. Because it's only through him. That we will be exalted. It's only through him and in him that we can be blessed in this life. And not only in this life, but in the life to come. Let's pray this morning. Father, I want to thank you for this time I've been able to share your word. I hope that I've made this clear. And I hope I've not disparaged anyone that doesn't believe in dispensational theology. Lord, there are some wonderful believers and followers of Christ that believe in covenant theology. That believe a different way. And Father, one day we'll find out for sure who is exactly right on these things. And that will be a glorious day because we'll all be together and then we'll all believe the same exact thing. But until that day, Father, help us to study your word, to get into your word, to know that you gave it to us so we could know what's going to happen. We could have an idea that Christ is coming back 
He is going to set up his kingdom and he is going to rule and reign. And it is going to be a glorious time. That you have not cast off your people of Israel forever. And the promises you made to them you will one day fulfill. And Lord God, the promises you made to us through Christ of eternal life. The moment we believe, the Bible says we have eternal life. I pray for anyone today that doesn't know Christ, that they would yield their heart to him in faith. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.